This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome to the Coach's Corner. Uh, in this uh, segment, we like to give you some some real-life coaching, some ideas, some tools. We just had a wonderful study presented to us by Andrew Steptoe about uh, as we're aging, our happiness levels, right? And so as part of that, I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, retirement. A lot of couples end up retiring, and it's you know it should be a great, a wonderful, blessed event because now all of a sudden – You've got nothing but time to just you and your honey to just live together and be happy. The reality is many people haven't even talked to their spouse for years. And so now we're supposed to make this work. And one person may have been the kind of stay at home person and the other was out in the workforce. And now you're going to come home and inject yourself into their life at home. So four conversations that we need to worry about as we are uh, thinking about retirement and so if you're an empty nester, it's an interesting statistic about your your divorce rate at empty nesting stage. Apparently, the divorce rate goes up about 16% when you and your honey are left alone with no more kids in, uh, in, the, uh, in the nest. Is that crazy? 16% increase simply because now we've got to work at it, as Andrew was saying earlier. The hard thing about a relationship is they demand work, and many of us haven't been doing the work. And so here's four conversations that if you're thinking of retiring, I would sit down and I would have each of these conversations. Don't think you're going to retire, then have the conversation. I'd first have the conversation. The first conversation is what I call the resources conversation. That is about how you are going to live on a fixed wage. With one or both of you now retiring, it only makes sense that you're not going to be able to live at the same financial level that you were before. In this conversation, you should discuss the financial realities of your world. You should evaluate a bunch of different things, your health care benefits, where they're going to come from, how they're going to change, your Medicare, your Medicaid, Social Security, rainy day funds, insurance costs, your cost of living. Is it time to, sh- to get a smaller home? Are we going to stay in the home? Is the home paid off? What are going to be the future changes that need to be made in the home? Are we going to uh, need to put a new roof on the home? What's going on? But start discussing this. I'd get very clear about what your actual inflow of money will look like, and I would do that before you walk away from another company. You know what? You'd, You'd think like, well, no, duh, Matt. But that doesn't always happen. Do you know the inflow of what your money's gonna look like? What will your outgo look like? Are you going to have a rainy day fund to take care of that house? Is it time to get the house on the market? Before we need to be making some of these major changes um, and, and the major you know breakdowns of certain uh, equipment in the home, what does our budget need to be in order to balance the inflow and the outgo? You got to figure that out. Part of the uh, resources conversation is what are the needs and the wants that we both have? Does one of us really want to travel a lot? You know, travel may cost. Do we have a budget for that? Are we going to buy a motor home and become members of the Good Sam Club? <laughs> And travel all over the country, is that going to be an expense we need to pay attention to? What are some extra activities that are going to come up now that we have more time? Should we just continue working part-time? You know, information, very basic conversation. Think about it. Have you had the conversation? 
By the way, that's a great conversation to have, whether you're retiring or not, by the way. Every one of these are. Um, another second conversation I'd be focusing on, after you've had the resources conversation, have the time conversation. You know, many times one of the biggest surprises is how much time you are actually going to be spending with each other. And a lot of people, when you first fell in love, that was great. Oh, my word. It's so exciting because we have nothing but time together. But you've kind of grown your own identity. You've grown your own hobbies. You've grown your own needs. You need to go figure out how much each other is going to need. How much space will your partner need every day? You've got to figure out what your time is versus their time versus our time. I would not retire and assume that we're just going to be together. I, I promise you, I've seen many a couple, once they're together, it, it goes south. Because now we, now what? Now you're going to look at what I'm doing and you're going to start judging how I spend my morning? You're going to watch those shows all morning? Get out of your chair. When are you going to go work on the yard? You've got nothing but time. So your schedules are going to matter. What time do we go to bed now? You know, what time do we wake up? How much time alone do you need every day? What does a tentative schedule look like? I'd break down your schedule. What are the times that you might call sacred every day, inviolable, that you know your partner should not be messing with? There might be certain shows you love. There might be certain lunches you love to go have that your partner is not to mess with. So the time conversation. Another conversation I love is the distribution of work conversation. This, by the way, is one that you should have with your spouse today, regardless of whether you're retiring or not. We tend to not serve equally in the home. The research shows that while we are dating, women do a little bit more work than the men do. If they're if they're cohabitating, for example, women do a little bit more work than the men do in the home. The interesting, sad research is once they marry, men do significantly less home work in the home than the woman does. Married people do not distribute the work evenly, especially if one partner works outside of the home. So you need to have a conversation. Are we going to, how are we going to distribute the work every day? You got to have clarity on this one because a lack of clarity is going to cause nothing more than pain. So how are we going to distribute the chores? We're going to discuss who's going to do what, who's inside the home, what are we going to do inside the home? Are we both going to work outside of the home? What happens with the automobiles, the family, the grandkids? You know, who's going to make dinner every night? Who cleans up the dinner? I would very specifically go through each part of this. And if we like doing it together, you know, you know, multiple hands make lighter work, right? So here's some questions you could ask. Who's responsible for what chores around the home? Who makes the dinner? Who cleans up? How many times should we eat out versus eating in? What is one activity that uh, you both have been doing for years that you want to quit? Talk about it. Who puts together the family parties? Whose responsibility should that be? Who sends out the birthday cards? Who pays the bills? Who does the grocery shopping? All different ideas about how we're going to distribute the work. So, so far, look at that. We've talked about how we're going to have our resources. Do we have enough? What will it look like? The time conversation, the distribution of work conversation, and last and certainly not least, probably the most important conversation you can have if you're about to retire. And Andrew Steptoe brought it up. It's the legacy conversation. The legacy conversation for me, critical, okay, because this is going to now shore up that you're going to say, great, let's say we each have 15 to 20 more years in us as we're retiring. What do we want our legacy to be as a couple, as an individual as well? What are your goals? What are your dreams? What is your new purpose? 
It's an exciting stage. Where do you want to invest this time? What do you want people to say? At your funeral, what do you want that legacy to be? This is where we can really tie it up. This is where our passion should come out, as Andrew Steptoe was talking about. Um, This is where we start discussing what do we want our children to say about us, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. You've got the time now. Now we need to maybe strengthen some relationships. We need to start you know, working on ourselves emotionally and spiritually and mentally, financially, physically. All of these are, are resources we can be using. But what motivates you? That's a great question at this stage. Share it. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Talk about it. What do you consider your most important responsibilities and relationships at this stage? Boy, what happens if one of your kids has a real blow up with their spouse or passes away, heaven forbid, and you get to raise the grandchildren? Is that your legacy? I'd throw these crazy questions in there because if you talk to people long enough, that's what all these couples are going through. Grandparents are picking up more today than they ever have. What is the purpose of your life? If I put a microphone in front of you and just said, hey, what is the purpose of your life? What would you say? What would your spouse say? Do you think you'd be on the same page? Because if we don't know the answer to that question, what are we doing? How do I know how to manage every one of my days if I don't know what the purpose of my life is? What is the lesson, one or two, maybe one of each of you, that you want to teach to the rest of the world? What do your grandkids need to know that only you could teach as a grandparent? And what lessons do you still need to learn? Basic questions about your legacy. By the way, these are just conversations, right? But my belief is it's a conversation that changes the game. That's why we do this show, because we want to change the conversations. So as we work on our resources, as we work on our time conversations, our distribution of work in the, in the marriage, and our legacy, every one of these conversations makes us stronger. And please listen to what your partner is saying. We've got to figure out what they want because one of the rules is uh, mutual benefit has to be there. We both have to be benefiting if we want a long-term relationship, right? So if this is about you controlling the resources and not letting your partner have any access to money, you're going to have problems. Or if the time, if you keep encroaching on their time or if you're not sharing the workload evenly, you're going to have issues, And we don't want issues because it's not going to make us happy. And according to our earlier research, we need to be happy in order to have longevity. Folks, that's the Coach's Corner. I highly challenge you, suggest that you get out there, have the conversation. And you know what? You don't need to wait for retirement. Legacy, distribution, time, resources. Four conversations, one relationship. That's the Coach's Corner. Thanks for joining us, my friends. We're going to take a break. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. If your tire goes flat, what do you do? Right? You get out of your car, you change the tire. If the air conditioning unit stops working, you open it up, take a look at it. But if your iPhone will not turn on, what do you do? Well, you, of course, you got to drive 40 minutes to the closest Apple store and have them fix it for you. Why is it that uh, we can't fix our own electronic devices? Why is it that these companies are making trillions? I mean, Apple's about uh, to become a trillion-dollar company, and yet 
we, you know, it's it's like it's almost impossible to get in and, and fix something on your own uh, iPhone. So here to help us understand what's going on is uh, Sarah Badad, who is an assistant professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering at the University of Buffalo, um, uh, at the State University of New York. Her research includes sustainable design and manufacturing, remanufacturing, and end-of-life product recovery. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Sure. It's an honor to be on the program. Thank you for having me. You bet. Great to have you. And what an interesting topic as well. Um, Why? Okay. So is it, this isn't by accident, right? That they're not, they're not providing um, parts so that we can just go in and fix our own phones. These companies, they're doing this for a reason. All right. Talk about the reason. Talk about why Uh, it is they don't want us messing with it. Um, if we want to be very critical, we can say that repair service actually these days is looked at as an important and consistent income stream for manufacturers and companies. Yeah. So you could see that the cost of repair is very high for consumers, and, and that is for several reasons. For example, spare parts are not available, spare parts are expensive. The required tools for repair are unavailable. The repair processes are very time-consuming. The repair processes are very complicated, and repair manuals are not available to the market. Hmm. And the, these reasons actually can somehow be fixed by manufacturers, but since manufacturers look at repair service and even after sales service as a kind of income stream, therefore it's very difficult for them to... Yeah basically develop some of those policies to solve uh, the repair issues. And then is it is it because they, I, I mean, like I guess you're saying they also, they can make a lot of money on the repairs, but they can also repurpose the phones and get you, you know, force you to to buy a new phone, right? That's that planned obsolescence, right? They want your phone, to, they want you to not want your phone anymore to get the newest phone. Um, yes, actually, we should mention that manufacturers have their own challenges as well. For example, they want to be competitive in the market, therefore, they constantly have to innovate and develop new products. So they have to find a way to motivate consumers to return back their old devices and upgrade to new ones. On the other hand, it's very, um, I would say, costly for them to uh, keep down the supply chain costs and inventory costs so they cannot keep making and stocking parts for old and outdated devices forever. Therefore, they have to um, develop some of these planet obsolescence to make the cost uh, lower. Uh, but on the other hand, they can somehow optimize the warranty time of the products. Um, unfortunately, these days we will see that most of the failures of electronics uh, happen immediately after the warranty expires. Right. So I would say that um, because they optimize the cost, they optimize the cost of actually developing new products, the, the marketing costs, and so on. Um, and obviously, manufacturers' um, objective should be to make profit. Um, but they, um, our research actually suggests that they can find other ways to make profit as well. And and that could happen if they design, let's say, repairable products and they operate in the market, they can increase consumer loyalties in the long run. 
and they can actually have more uh, consumers in the long run because consumers will purchase from the same brand, will, will recommend it to their friends and families if they have successful, let's say, repair experiences. Uh, because uh, unfortunately, consumers do not pay attention to repair problem at the purchase time. Many of us don't really care about that. But when a product is failed, that is the time that we start thinking that, okay, what would be the cost of repair and how repairability is important to us. So I think if we somehow educate and train even consumers to think about repairability at the purchase time, that will help a lot, and then that will provide some motivations for manufacturers to actually consider some of these policies. Yeah, it seems like it seems like in the automobile world, for example, we um, we like the cars that are uh, that we know can last a long time, that are well made, but also the ones that that we can uh, more easily get the parts for and and continue to fix down the road. Is it just? Is it these electronic companies, device companies that are that have such a different mentality? It's almost like it's it's more of a disposable thing. We buy the phone for eight hundred dollars, we keep it for four years, we break the screen, the battery wears out, and we just almost think it's time to get a new one. Um, but those phones don't just go only to the landfill, right? They also go back, and then they're re reconstructed re, uh, and sold in other markets. Um, yes, I would say yes and no, because uh, in many cases, actually, the formal collection rates of all electronics is very low, and the percentage of that actually will uh, return back to the landfill also is high, because in many cases, either consumers will store their electronic devices after they are done with that, or they may put it in trash bin, unfortunately. Yeah. But there are a percentage of people who return them back to, um, I would say, official take-back programs. But some studies shows that actually a big portion of these uh, old electronics will be exported from the country to other um, um, underdeveloped, um, basically developing regions and um, will be recycled in a kind of informal way, which will bring environmental challenges for those regions and also economic loss for our country. So I would say... <laughs> uh, um, refurbishing electronics still has a long way to go and there are again several reasons behind that because the cost of refurbishing is high the collection rate from consumers is not um, basically um, sufficient on the other hand still consumers prefer to purchase new electronics than refurbished ones Mm. for example most of us are okay with purchasing used cars but we may not be okay with purchasing refurbished electronics because we don't know that they are actually reliable. So I think we still need perhaps a few years to to create a market for refurbished electronics in the U.S. at least. And then that will bring a kind of motivation for manufacturers to refurbish electronics and create a market for it either in the U.S. or in other countries or other regions. But yeah, yeah so I think that... Is- is it feasible when you look at it as a professional, Sarah, is it feasible that we could actually make the repairs, the most common repairs on a cell phone? Could the average person – I mean it seems like an average person, once they learn how to do it, it's fairly simple to change a tire. It might be you know, mm-hmm. It might be difficult, but you can do it. But um, can the average person fix what needs to be fixed in the, you know, the most common cell phone repair? I 
should actually point out that we we are far away from allowing even individual consumers to repair their own electronics, but the point is that these days even third-party service providers cannot help with the repair industry because, again, the, the spare parts are very expensive. The spare parts are not actually sold to the third-party repair service provider, and the repair manuals are, so are not available mm. to them. So I would say still the market for repair is in the hand of manufacturers rather than having a market in which both third-party service providers and manufacturers actually can compete and basically reduce the cost of repair. So I think first we need to make that market available, being a kind of open market for repair services. And then the story would be different if we want to allow individual, basically, consumers to repair their own electronics. Oh. So, yeah. Uh, that, yeah. That's I, maddening, right? I mean, because, again, I, I – you know you're going to wear out a battery over a few years. You know you're going to break a screen. Um, what, what can consumers do to put, I guess, a little pressure on manufacturers? Or is it – I mean, I, I guess in your article you talked more about it might have to be governments that put more pressure on manufacturers to make parts and, you know, the manuals available. Yes, I would say one solution could be legislation, but as you mentioned, it's better actually to um, to basically create a market in which um, manufacturers uh, could respond to consumers' needs and don't they should not be worried about legislation. But currently, the pitch that actually manufacturers um, or spreading is that they will no longer sell parts because they want to protect consumers from possibly having their devices stolen. And because of the copyright issue, let's say they don't allow um, consumers to repair their own electronics and they basically pitch the problem in that aspect. Um, but I guess uh, if, at least if they make the buyers aware at the time of purchase that for how long the spare parts will be available to the market. Um, what would be the situation of basically repair spare part availability, uh, availability of repair manuals in the market? Therefore, co- consumers at some point they will recognize the importance of report, uh, as basically repair and then they have to um, because they're, the, the job of manufacturers is to make consumers happy. So if we make consumers aware of the issue, and then manufacturers will respond and to their consumer needs. Yeah. Yeah. Again, we're speaking with Sarah Badad, who is an assistant professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering at the University of Buffalo, the State University of New York. She's talking to us about an article she wrote, Why, we, uh, why Can't We Fix Our Electronic Devices? And very interesting insight. Um, there are some states in the United States that are that are moving forward laws um, about uh, – that, that would make it, I guess, a little more likely or or you more likely in that state to maybe be able to do some of those repairs. Talk about talk about uh, that like that uh, legal process. Yeah. So um, actually, my knowledge is very limited about legislation because our research is mainly focused on the impact of product design and consumers. But we follow what, what the news actually is about legislation. Um, these days, at least eight states are considering laws that 
would somehow force manufacturers to to make to to sell let's say parts in the market to um, make repair manuals available and to actually make make uh, repair tools and equipment also available to the market um, again because um, um, these days, um, the third-party repair shops do not have access to many of these spare parts, and they do not have even um, access to repair manuals because manufacturers um, basically don't want to share those information, and, and their pitch is that they will no longer sell parts to protect consumers from possibly having their yeah. devices stolen or for uh, intellectual property issue or for copyright issue. But these days, for example, the U.S. Copyright Office suggested that we should have similar rules um, uh, over the na- nation to somehow protect consumers' uh, rights and um, basically ask manufacturers to uh, to accommodate some of these um, basically issues. Yeah. In fact, you mentioned the copyright laws and one of the one of the I think surprising things that that's happened that you can see happening in um kind of this electronic world is um farmers for example have really advanced uh, tractors and farm equipment now that is run on very advanced uh, computer programs and algorithms and now uh, these farmers who used to maybe buy and uh, buy their own tractors, keep them, keep them forever. Now, what they're finding out is they themselves don't even have ownership of everything in the in these in the tractors. Right? They don't own right. the computers, the equipment. Talk about the impact that's having. Yeah, that definitely will impact farmers a lot because imagine in the middle of night something, just a small uh, problem happened because let's say failure of a sensor which is not even important um, and uh, the farmers cannot fix their tractors and they have to actually wait and um, imagine that the repair service um, location is um, um, 50 miles away and they have to basically wait. Um, mm. They need to stop their work to find a way to fix it. And then finally, it turns out that it's a very, very um, a small uh, failure that even doesn't affect the, uh, the performance of the, or is not important even. Uh, because most of this, uh, as you mentioned, um, because of the software and uh, um, basically electronic uh, uh, parts that are currently used in those devices, they cannot fix them themselves. And it will bring, uh, obviously, uh, too many issues yeah. for them. I mean, I mean, really, and especially for a farmer that is used to being able to pretty much fix anything on their right. farm to, to self-sustain, um, boy, to be stopped by a copyright idea or a copyright infringement. I guess this is going to happen more and more, it seems like, huh, Sarah? Because in the end... Uh, we there there is so much more being run by technology, and there are patents and and laws about who owns that technology, and they don't want that technology to to be stolen by other organizations or companies. So, um, do you just project that we'll have more and more situations uh, like we're seeing now, where we just won't be fixing our devices, we won't be we won't be able to do it ourselves. Right. Um, as you mentioned, these days everything is a kind of electronics. Um, actually, it's funny because um, we still don't have a, a precise definition for um, electronic waste or e-waste uh, because um, 
every year a new type of devices are coming to the market and all of them are electronics. So if we actually don't perhaps stop this situation that could spread to all the products that we are using and then it will limit repair capability, reuse, recycling, um, basically um, a lot. And it will bring not only, I would say, economic loss for um, the country and consumers, but also environmental issues a lot. Because imagine if you can't fix any type of product yeah. in the future, then what will, will happen? So uh, I and, agree. And we've talked, to, we've talked to the author of the book, Garbology, about how much Garbage is is you know being made by these new advancements, and also he wrote another book on transportation about how you know how far your phone has to has to fly and move in order to get the phone to you. So Sarah, this is cutting edge stuff, and we appreciate your insight again. Sarah Badad is her name, and she is an assistant professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering at the University of Buffalo, the State University of New York, and uh, we're we're just grateful. To have her insights. Imagine, though, this also sets up the day that you're probably not even going to want to own your car, right? Because why own it if you can't fix it, if you can't adapt it and adjust it, if you can't get the parts you want? Maybe we'll just get to an economy where you either don't have a car and you just ride or do Uber and share cars, or uh, maybe you get to a point where everything's just leased and you're just used to making a payment, I guess. What's happening? What about the good old days when you could just run down to the auto parts store and pick up a filter to put in? Yeah. Those days may be gone because now you have a copyright infringement. (laughs) Crazy, crazy days. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll continue the journey. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. We can't apparently fix our own stuff, and apparently you can't, you know, start a new company to be the cell phone repair shop no. because you can't get any parts. You have to be licensed. You have to be licensed, and they're no. not going to license you, and they're not going to give you the parts, and they're not going to give you a manual. So you're just going to have to find another job. And then on top of it, uh, you found a really interesting list about 18 best jobs for people who don't like people. Yes. Because that's – I mean there's a lot of us starting to not like humans anymore. Well, you know, if you're introverted, maybe you don't like to put yourself out there. Yeah. You claim to be one, but you I'm a total introvert. You're on the radio. Um, no, you don't have to actually talk to people. I mean, you talk to us, but it's not yeah, like there's but, like but are mass. you guys people? Occasionally we Compared to us, you are not an introvert. Yeah, I'm an introvert. No. I'm a socially adept introvert. I you're don't <laughs> I, so introversion means you get your energy by from inside of you. Extroversion means you get your energy outside of you. I don't get energized by others. I get energized all by myself. Anyway. So for this, they, the, uh, the authors consulted the Occupational Information Network, a U.S. Department of Labor database full of detailed information on oh. 974 occupations. Wow, okay. 
they rate each occupy the uh, the occupational information network rates each occupation on a scale scale from zero to one hundred on how much a job requires workers to be in contact with others, <laughs> okay, and good. how much a job requires workers to be pleasant with others. Oh, uh, they, yeah. These are all listed, yeah, right? Yeah. So they pick the right top eighteen. Okay. So but, so if you don't like people. And you uh, you don't want to be around people. These are the jobs you'll want. And so it says, well, people who hold these positions aren't necessarily standoffish. No. The following jobs got the lowest average scores and therefore require minimal good-natured interaction with others. The great high count, high chancellor of North Korea. Yes. There's one. He doesn't have to do anything. So the number one job they listed, foundry mold and core makers. They make form wax or sand cores and mold using the production of yeah. metal casting and foundries. They run a machine. Sounds like a great job. And by the way, you're probably in a really loud oh, yeah. place. There's no conversation. There's no, you can't talk. Everyone's got and headphones you're all on. Wearing all these protective gear. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. It'd be great. Uh, two is watch repair. Oh yeah, because you need it quiet mm-hmm. so that you can do the delicate work of watch repair. And if you go into a watch repair shop, which you know you all have. Oh yeah. Oh, I did. You see I, just, just one, yesterday one one guy in the back with weird glasses yeah. on, and no one's talking to and him. And he's always like cross-eyed because he's been looking yeah. at that small watch. <laughs> he's cross-eyed. Quarry rock splitters. They break blocks of rough dimension stone from quarry mass using a jackhammer. What a horrible job that would be. <laughs> <laughs> All day long. But again, you don't have to talk to That's anybody. That's so great. That, mm. Agricultural equipment operators. They drive and control farm equipment. Yeah. You're the tractor driver that, yeah. So another one where your hearing is just shot. Yeah. They perform tasks like crop bailing or hay bucking. See, but now they have these really sure nice, they have is. great equipment. So you like it's all weather controlled. You can sit in there and just listen to books on tape, <laughs> all by yourself in the middle of Iowa. Just pray that the software does not go. That's true. Are you best. in trouble? Yep. Five is a mathematician. They yeah. just work on proofs. And it's never happened. And they Those stare the, at a board. They do like math magic tricks, right? Mm-hmm. Mathematicians. Yeah. Uh, economists. They conduct research, yeah. prepare reports, formulate plans. We occasionally bug them for an interview. Uh huh. Oh, those are fun. Then they come in and it's like, when is this going to be over? Yeah, they're like, oh, this is so painful. <laughs> Economists hate coming on the show. A potter. They operate production machines such as a plug mill, a jigger machine, or potter's wheel to process clay and manufacture. Harry Potter. Potter. I was thinking the yeah. same thing. So they hold on. The jigger machine? The jigger machine, as it says. Uh, Jeff, you run the jigger machine, don't you? <laughs> we have it in the other room. Nothing. Nobody can run a jigger machine better than Jeffrey. You know, like they say, like you know, like the when I was a kid, like the TV wouldn't be, you know, the antenna yeah. needed. You go and just jigger with the antenna, just move around. <laughs> that's your job. Just go there. Jigger me timbers. I think every little kid growing up when I was a kid, everyone had that job because your dad yeah, didn't want to get off right, the couch. No. You were the remote. You were the remote. Transportation equipment painters. Transportation equipment. Oh, equipment. They painters. operate and tend painting machines to paint surfaces of transportation equipment like automobiles, buses, trucks, trains, boats, airplanes. That's a job. Yeah, they stand there and go. Well, someone's got to paint there. Well, I know. You just you think they would automate? Just that. be called a painter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, forging machines, setters, operators, and tenders. Again, they set up and take care of machines. Okay. Yeah. Fallers. Oh, oh yeah. I fall like, all the time. I don't get paid for it. I've fallen and can't get up. They use axes or chainsaws to fell trees oh. using knowledge of tree characteristics. Oh, oh those lumberjacks. Are, those are tim- yeah. timberists. 
They call them fallers. I thought they were timbers. But they do it in a way to minimize tree damage. Like the bounty man. Though I've seen the TV shows, <laughs> I don't see those guys like minimizing tree damage. They're just like, no. let's cut some stuff Maximizing down. Maximizing tree damage. Okay. Hand grinding and polishing workers. Yeah. Geologic sample test technicians. Like you got to go mm. take a core sample. We got a core of the yeah. ice shelf, and we got to yeah look for aliens. Uh, before um, you see the doctor, we're going to need this sample from you. Just put it in the little cup. <laughs> Garment or textile press. There's a lot of people using big machines that you can't have conversations around. That seems to be a key here. It's not a bad deal. Craft artists, they create, reproduce handmade objects for sale and exhibition using a variety of techniques. And Etsy, I didn't say that, but that's where they put it. Yeah, is that where it is? Is on Etsy? Okay. Well, you got to have a photograph, and then you got to have a, a whole paragraph like explaining the experience. Oh, yeah. People want. And then if it, if it turns out nice, everyone can put it on Pinterest. Poets, lyricists, and creative writers. Yeah. Uh, see, that one I could do. Those are all solitary experiences, right? That's the only one on the list I think I could actually do. I mean, actually do. Farm worker and crop laborers. Yeah, like if you're mm. out picking avocados. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, you tend to see there's like a lot of people out there, though. It's yeah. It's not like one person picking a crop of Maybe vegetable. they're not multitaskers well, and they can't talk they, while they do, pick. But do they go together? I mean, like I'd want to be the lone guy that's off from everyone else. Right. And I'd probably just sing a hymn or something. Oh, well, well, there you just go. pick my avocados. If you were off by yourself, though, they'd probably think that you knew something that they didn't. <laughs> oh, he knows where the good ones are. He's always got them good dogs. And the last one list, hunters and trappers. Yeah. See, these are all manly things. Well, yeah. It's just who doesn't want to talk to people? Men. Do you ever talk to couples where the husband feels like their wife is a hunter and a trapper? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, yeah, and the, and the wife's always like, oh, he's just a jiggerer. <laughs> all he wants to do is jigger. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, hard. There you go. Those are jobs. If you're not <sighs> wanting to be around people, you can work in those professions. They're very, very manly oriented. Eh. You know? Put and on I, some overalls, run a machine. Yeah. Put on some headphones. But I, I've actually thought, you know, maybe I could be a truck driver, like a long haul truck driver. I think I would like that for a week. Tomorrow's show, talking to a guy who did that. And we have some of our great fans and listeners of the show are truck drivers. We had one that suggested the topic that we're going to talk about tomorrow. Mm. How, how truck drivers are really not finding their way in the economy. Yeah, I'm worried about truck drivers because they, you know, more and more technology is creating bigger problems for all of us. Remember it was Bass? That was the guy yeah, that called Bass him. Yeah, Bass was right. our man. Seabass? Uh, it's a different Bass. Oh, okay. It's okay. It's Seabass's brother. He defended hmm. a previous Big uh, mouth bass. Board, board operator that we shamed on a daily yeah. basis. Yeah. He was a good man. Yeah. Bass, if you're listening, give us a call. one eight five five chat byu We'd love to check in with you, see how uh, how driving's going. I really, I've thought about it, and not, not because it's an easy job, but because you're kind of alone and you could get a lot of stuff listened to. Plus, I think it'd just be fun to take an 18-wheeler and, you know, intimidate a little Hyundai. You would own the road. Own it! That's right. Good stuff, folks. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We do what we can to give you a leg up in life. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. 
with uh, President Obama's town hall meeting on gun safety, it just kind of shows us again how difficult it is to create uh, a, a really open conversation on such a polarized topic as guns. So I wanted to talk about how we can learn to persuade people, how we can influence others, um, and get people to believe in your cause without polarizing it. Because you, you can't have a gun a discussion about guns, it seems like, without it moving very quickly to the extremes, as it does on so many other issues in our culture, in our world. Um, for example, on terrorism and, and the discussions of, and war and going you know, to Iraq and, um, and abortion. But, but in, in the end, we, we look at the politicians. They're extreme. They're going to be extreme. They have to be extreme. They're, they have to placate and, and do what they've got to do to, their, to get elected. But we don't, right? So we, we are the people that are eventually going to elect these politicians and eventually are going to actually create the change like State Senator Todd Weiler we just talked to. Um, here's, here's my view. The power is, is really in our hands to change these debates, these discussions. Um, we can change them in our local you know, meetings on the local level, but we can also just change them in our conversations around the dinner table. So – there's power and in and an ability for each of us to persuade people to be more open-minded, but you gotta you gotta kind of follow some principles. I wouldn't just say like Trump did. You know, Hillary, if she believes that guns are so dangerous, then her security team needs to lose all their guns. Okay, that, I mean it's a great point, Don. You, you nailed it. Donald Trump said that. The same is also true. If guns are so safe, Donald then everybody in your meetings and rallies should have their guns by their side. Now, can you imagine a three, ten, or three to 10,000-person rally with Donald Trump with 10,000 guns in the room? See, that's just ludicrous. It's crazy because we can't trust the few. There's just a few in the room that can't be trusted. And there's just a few in the room that the security guards around Hillary Clinton are protecting Hillary from. So if you notice, we're not fighting an argument of everyone. We're fighting an argument of just the few. But those are the things we're not talking about. We're not talking about just those few. And we're always trying to protect our rights. So listen, here's some principles for how to persuade other people to believe in more in in your cause. First, got to know what you believe. Know what you believe, but don't just know what you believe because, you know, you, you've got the talking points from, um, you know, the NRA or from, you know, the Democratic anti-gun movement. Know what you believe truly. What are the principles, for example, that of why you want to have a gun in your home? Is it safety? What else is it? Is it, is it hobby to go hunting? Is it collection? You have so many different reasons, but why do you believe in what you believe? What are your principles for why you believe in pro-life or pro-choice? Understand your beliefs. And don't just understand them because somebody talked to you about them. I, for example, um, I, I was very pro-death penalty for a long time. And now I'm just kind of – I'm neutral. <laughs> I've moved to neutral by simply reading and studying more about how many innocent people are also being killed. And, you know – it scares me that we could make mistakes on the death penalty. And it's moved me back to center 
um, when I may have been more extreme in one way or another. But it came because I really dug deep to find out, is that something I actually believe or is that just one of the things that my party believes? Right. So know what you believe. And before you try to convince everyone else of something, be informed and know what you believe. And please get more informed than just the local media. Right. Or the national media or just this one position. Understand both positions of the argument. Another thing you could do is show passion, not obsession. Nothing on earth is a better attractor than someone that's passionate. But also nothing is a greater repellent than a person that is an obsessed that's obsessed. So the guy that has to show up at a parade with, a, with an automatic rifle because he can, that's obsessive. That's not healthy. And it's, it's also not respectful to others. You can – if your obsession crushes everyone else's respect of others, then you're in trouble. You can be passionate about your guns and highly informed, but you don't need to become – Extreme. Moderation. Moderation in all things. The next rule is be the billboard. What I mean by that is very simply, we are always the best demonstration of what we believe in. We always are the the one. We're the demonstrator. We're the best model. We're the best billboard of what we believe in. So if you want to influence people, then be the billboard. And the interesting thing about like billboard marketing is it's really about putting it up there and you want to keep your billboard up for a while or a long time because it's repetition, repetition, repetition. When people see that you're an open-minded person and informed about your views and able to hear other people's views, that billboard shows that you're trustworthy on this topic. If you could start showing that you're open-minded to hearing everyone else's opinion, which to me that town hall started to do for the president, I think, and it's why I think it would be powerful for the NRA to show that they're open-minded to hearing as well. Um, then we could have some powerful discussions. But we are always the billboard. So if you really want to influence another human, be open to what others are saying. And then last but not least, to persuasion, always think about the people, not the persuasion. The people are what matters. And in the end, it's going to be the people that will make the decisions. It will be the people that will – will facilitate and and make it easier for you to to have the you know your goals achieved or it will be the people that will fight against it. We have so many people in our culture in our country today fighting um each other because no one's talking or thinking about the actual people involved. They're just trying to get their point across. Uh when you hear a story like we heard earlier in the show of a a a girl shooting accidentally her sister to death with her father's shotgun that he left out after a hunt, that's a people story. That should move you. That should actually at least make your heart open up a little bit. And you shouldn't just shut that down just so you can go back to your point. Yeah, but he should still have the right to have a gun. Sure, he should. We don't have to be pro-gun or anti-gun. We can be both. It's just the situation and how it impacts the people. Persuasion, folks. Think of people, not persuasion. Be the billboard. Show passion, not obsession. And truly know what you believe. That's how you influence people. Not just arguing louder or threatening them with, you know, repercussions. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. One of my favorite books ever. Hardest book to read I've ever experienced. Like, literally, I would read a page a day. But it was by Martin Buber... 
um, who was uh, a philosopher, and the book is called I and Thou. It was first published in 1923, but it reminds me of um, the power of a relationship. And he, in the book, uh, Martin Buber teaches that there's, there's two ways to kind of orient yourself to other people. As an I-it, meaning I, I'm the I, and you are an it, an object, separate from me. Or I can orient towards you as an I-thou and a thou meaning I'm in a relationship with you that um, that is is sacred. That's the thou, right? So that's the terminology you'd use to address a god in your prayer, perhaps. So when we think about how we deal with the people around us, do you look at people as an it, as a Republican or a Democrat, as a male or a female, as a a Muslim, a Mormon, a Catholic, a Jew? How do you orient? To people? Do you orient by their color? Do you orient by their degree? And uh, Martin Buber talks about the fact that eventually our healthiest relationships are where we see people as a thou, an I-thou relationship, where I revere you, I respect you. And if I, if I see you as a thou, then there's something holy about you. Uh, Emerson used to teach that there's a divine spark inside of each one of us. And that divine spark has to be honored. It has to be upheld, which means I've got to be careful how I talk about you, right? I've got to be careful what I say or I don't say. I need to be willing to listen to what you are saying because you are special. You're not just a thing or an it, which is why our labels in our world, are it's so uh, possibly devastating because the minute I've labeled you, you become an it for me. Even, by the way, with our children, we can make our children an it, an object, because they're our children, right? That's my daughter, and I could end up seeing her as an it instead of a thou. So it's just powerful to start realizing that between each one of us, there's a relationship. And how I look at you depends on how, in the end, I will treat you. And wouldn't it be powerful if we could see the divine spark in everyone around us? How would that change the dialogue of our candidates? How would it change the dialogue in our families if we could just see that there's a divinity inside of each and every one of us? Powerful, powerful stuff. That's the Coach's Corner. Fast, but uh, I think profound. We'll take a break. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Interesting uh, conversation. Matt, if you could just go to a therapist, uh, or if you didn't need to go to the therapist, and you could just do it yourself, we're going to put a lot of therapists out of business. <laughs> Ben's like, yes. I mean, therapists do great work, but many times they're just, they're they're really just reflective listeners, right? They're listening well. And what would happen if you had a friend that was a, a, just a really good listener? Are you that kind of friend that you can perform that listening function, um, you know, 
for your partner to, to help get their emotions out. Oh, it's it's not easy. I get it. I know. I know. It's not easy. And so um, when you think about it, and I, I see this a lot in my practice, there's, there's these signs, okay? I call them – you don't need to just always be, I don't know, totally ready and engaged to just listen to your partner. But there are times you have to be ready to be engaged and listen to your partner. There's three signs I look for, and I learned about them – um, I learned about this concept as an emergency medical technician. So right after uh, uh, when I was about 21, I guess, I was an EMT on an ambulance and I it was certified in you know life support or basic life support and uh, learned all the tools and the rules and, and how, to, how to basically take care of somebody in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. And one of the first things they taught us is you got to check vital signs, right? Vital signs. Because you need to know where your patient is. There's a very basic baseline for where your patient is, and you need to check, you know, pulse, um, respirations. If you could, oxygenation, see how well they're oxygenating. You could take a, a blood pressure, just basic signs. And the neat thing about humans is we pretty much have these very basic vital signs. And then what happens is there's a very powerful um, pattern that doctors and, and hospitals use where when you come in and see them, you can say whatever you want to say about why what you're feeling, and they'll be listening to you. But while they're listening to you, they're going to check your vital signs, right? They're going to check your temperature. They're going to check a bunch of different things. All of those are signs of something going on deeper down. And what I have found is just like we have it physiologically, we have vital signs. Emotionally, we have vital signs as well. So there's three signs I'm constantly looking for in the people that are around me. Negative emotion is a sign. There's a sign of something deeper going on. And if you see negative emotion in somebody, instead of yapping and instead of arguing and telling them your point of view, I wouldn't tell them. I would just try to understand where their emotion is coming from. So I look for negative emotion. I look for misunderstanding, and I look for mistrust. When I see those signs, I know I need to kind of get out of my agenda and get into the agenda of the other person, right? So if, if, my, if my spouse comes home and they're slamming doors, that's negative emotion. I should see that, pay attention to that. I should try to understand what's going on. Hey, babe, I can see you're frustrated. Tell me what's going on. I'm just mad because the kids took my whatever and I can't find it, and I've got to go use it right now. There's frustration. Behind every negative emotion, you're going to hear a story. People want to tell their story because they would love the emotion to go away. So what if as humans, we could just start paying attention to the negative emotion, the misunderstandings. Misunderstanding simply means when something's going on and you don't know why it's going on and there's a misunderstanding. If, I'm, if, if I have a, a person that's, that's quiet and, and shuts down, I'm going to know they have negative emotion and I don't understand exactly why. I shouldn't just guess. Is this because of what happened last year? <laughs> I mean, last year's example of, of this same you know, behavior may not be very accurate. So I, what I'd love to do is recognize the emotion. You seem really upset. What's going on? Share with me why you're upset. Because if I could get the story, that would increase my understanding, right? And then if I could understand the person and not you know, make them worse, then they could trust me. So that's what we're looking for in our relationships. 
emotional management, understanding, and trust. That's the best thing I've ever learned to know when I need to be listening to somebody. When I see that they're negative emotionally, when I don't understand why and I don't understand their reasoning, try to understand it, and do they trust me to share it? Anyway, that's where I'd start working with the people I love, the people I care about, a little coach's corner for you right there. Emotional management, it's hard stuff, let alone doing it with each other. Near impossible. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Really, the art of stillness, it's something we don't, we just don't do. And you know what else I, I really liked about his, Pico in general is he's just, he's really approachable. He's, uh, one of the things he, he didn't tell is a story that he was in um, Japan on business and while he was there, he just saw such a different world, and he and he be, he was called. He basically felt like he was called. He saw these temples, he saw um, little wooden homes, all of these incredible things. He wanted to to make a part of his life. So he really he went to New York, quit, did did all these things, and within a week, I believe, he was back, um, or relatively quickly, he was back to Japan. Now, when he got to Japan, he decided he's just going to go join a monastery. So he went to a temple, joined a monastery, and you're like, oh, wow, what a guy, Pico. And then a week later, he quit. He's like, I'm out of here. (laughs) These people, all they do is they do a lot of cleaning. And he didn't realize how much cleaning was involved in monastic (laughs) commitments. And so he moved about a block or two away from the monastery in this small little place apartment and that's where he he started his life and then ended up creating and finding his wife and her children and then ended up creating again a fairly monastic life he felt um, but was able to offer more of himself um, than just instead of just the cleaning so anyway powerful thing and where I you know a lot of people are aren't prone to go you know to a monastery or aren't prone to go do meditation or whatever yoga But let me just suggest where you might want to create some stillness is in some conversations in your life. What if we could just be more still and um, in in listening and in hearing what people are saying? What if we just allowed more space in our talk, our conversations, so that everything wasn't always about – you know, me needing to compete, me needing to run away, me needing to argue, me needing to entertain you. So try just with your family, with your kids, with your spouse, creating, um, just creating peace, creating a space. Because I, I feel strongly that we need, we need to learn to just be still in our thoughts and allow um, other people to influence us more. We are so into trying to convince and convert everyone to our specific way of thinking that we sometimes don't even allow that spirit to come in. And that, that spirit, by the way, is is the definition of inspiration is where the spirit is inside, is coming from within. And if you truly want to inspire somebody, sometimes the best way to do that is to just shut your flapper, <laughs> not to be rude, but shut your mouth and allow – your words allow your just sensitivity, allow your emotion, allow the peace to do the talking. And sometimes you'll find out it's a much better communicator than you ever will be. Uh, have you ever heard the quote that says, who you are speaks so loudly, I can't hear the words you're saying. 
So maybe the stillness that Pico is trying to teach us can come from just being the person that we need to be and, and being the person we need to be in the way we need to be it, in the space we need to be it, at the right time we need to be it. It's, it's, that's the convergence, I think, of spirituality, where all of a sudden everything we are in the right moment, at the right time, it can converge and we're an open, you know, vessel, willing to be and do what we need to be and do in any space. I know that sounds all foo-foo-y, but the reality is think about your greatest moments. The One of the greatest moments of my life where I felt that spirit the most and stillness the most would be a baby being born. And it's pretty chaotic, right? Then there's that peace, that stillness, when everyone goes quiet and the baby's there and all you do is you just hold your baby. And that, now you can breathe. And then you obviously you've got to count the fingers and the toes because you don't, you know, you got to make sure you got everything. But the peace is there. And so I think in our lives, we'll, f- we'll feel that a lot more. I also think that peace, I think I'm, I believe in God, and I think he wants you to feel peace. And interestingly, nothing seems to kind of create more, you know, almost anti-God than just complete chaos and overwhelming um, just confusion. So turn some things off. Test it. Test Pico's advice today. Test it. I dare you. Just create space. Do you dare do 15 minutes? What if you just in your marriages committed to listening to each other for 15 minutes a night? Oh, really? Oh, jeez. I mean, I love her, but don't make me listen to her for 15 minutes. Come on! You're not going to get to find out who she really is if you never listen. And if you're going to try to you know, influence your partner to listen, you might want to make sure that when you're talking, it's not always negative or it's not always you know complaining or whatever we've all got something to do so ask yourself where are you going to go implement the lessons of pico ire also forgot to tell you his website is pico p i c o ire e oh, this is going to be hard pico journeys.com p i c o i y e r journeys.com pico I-Y-E-R dot journeys dot com. Pico Iyer journeys dot com. Thanks for joining us, folks. We're going to take a break, come back, and take off on our next topic. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. In our constant quest to be happier, skinnier, smarter, and wealthier, we're living our daily lives based on some notion that we aren't enough just the way we are. We, we you know, we, we, we tend to believe we're flawed, that we're, we're not good enough. The fact is that many of us just don't like ourselves as much as we probably should. 90% of women reportedly hate their bodies. Twice as many American women than men are on antidepressants. And studies estimate that 10 million women and girls suffer from eating disorders. And uh, so here to help us understand uh, and to really get involved in what she calls the self-love experiment is Shannon Kaiser. She is a writer and author of uh, many books, has a wonderful website as well, playwiththeworld.com. And she's here to teach us a little bit more about how we can, uh, how we can love and appreciate ourselves more. Shannon, thanks for being with us today. Hi. Good morning. This is um, – it, it seems like a universal – 
kind of issue where so many people don't they just don't like who they are and um talk to us about that what what do you think is behind our dislike of ourselves yes it's so interesting because i think so many of us are walking around i was for many many years feeling unworthy i couldn't look in the mirror and say anything good about myself and i was writing books about happiness and i got to a place where i said well, how happy can you really be if you don't love yourself? So that was like a really big piece that was missing. And I started to do research and I dove into what I call, started as three months, turned into three years, the self-love experiment on why people don't like themselves. And really, there's lots of reasons, but, you know, kind of the, the basics is like society will tell us we have to look a certain way. Family has pressure that they put on us, cultural beliefs. Uh, really, it's about coming back to yourself. And what the self-love experiment gave me and also teaches readers is that we do belong in a world that's constantly trying to tell us that we're not good enough, pretty enough, smart enough, rich enough, whatever it may be. We are enough. Hmm. It, it really is. It's so needed to to kind of love yourself. I mean, it almost seems like the prerequisite of loving others would be to love yourself enough. And and it seems like also the byproduct of loving others could be loving yourself and vice versa. It's one of the things I know you bring up in the book is it's one thing to, to kind of not to be a self-critic. It's another thing to actually start creating patterns that's where we self-sabotage. Talk about mm-hmm. kind of that that cycle we get into where eventually our self-critique turns into self-sabotage. It can actually keep us from really being present in our life. For many, many years it did for me. I would be out to dinner with friends and I couldn't even be present because I was so focused on the next bite I took would put me over my calorie limit or, or whatever it may be. And so I felt very alone. And I think we first need to kind of recognize that it feels very isolating, and I know for me, I felt like I was the only one in the world who didn't like myself, but this is an epidemic that is going on, so it is so important we talk about it. So that's where we have to start. But then recognize the self-sabotaging patterns are often called secondary gains. So Martha Beck, the life coach, also talks about this. Many of us do these habits, and then we actually beat ourselves up for doing them, such as overspending or binge eating or focusing, you know, picking fights for no reason. What we really want to do is ask ourselves, what is it we really want from what we're doing, the habit that's causing us the most pain? For example, if someone's binge eating a lot, perhaps you really want security or you want acceptance. And so the goal, and I take people through a process in the book, what I call me matters, is to shift your attention to focus on a more positive way to get that need met. And this is one loving act you can do for yourself at a time. And then you'll start to be more kind towards yourself and everyone else. So you break it down into like specific needs um, and then you, you kind of help us build a plan through the process for how to take on that need. Yes, and this is a kind of a step-by-step process. So we really, one of the goals and one of the actual principles in, in the process is to be who you needed to be when you were younger. And I think a lot of us, especially between age seven and nine, something happens. It's just part of growing up where we do something that feels normal, whether, you know, you were the kid who drew pictures and people thought that was really weird because you should be an athlete or whatever it was. Um, When I was little, I loved sugar. So the world teachers, my parents said, don't eat ice cream before dinner or whatever it was. And I was so confused by that as a little eight-year-old that I, I shied away from who I really was. And that caused an eating disorder at a very young age. And as an adult, the goal is to go back to that child who was suffering, who didn't get what she or he needed, 
and give it that love, give it that attention. And that's one way we can heal and start to really accept ourselves as we are now. That's great. Talk about what are what are some signs? I mean, some of us may not even know we have that big of a, uh, you know, a, a self-love problem. What are signs that we might be self-sabotaging? There are so many signs, and sometimes we don't even realize it. And one of the main ones, excuse me, the main ones is, for example, self-doubt. Is your self-doubt in control? Is your fear kind of louder than the love voice? And fear and self-doubt exist in the head. And it could say something as simple as, oh, you should have done better today on your show, or you should have done better, said that to your boss. Gosh, I can't believe you. And it's that inner critic that is constantly trying to tell us, hey, buddy, you're not doing good enough. And it could be as simple as looking in the mirror and and saying something very unkind about yourself. God, I hate that said, or look at my, my hair today. And it's really about the inner voice. And so we want to start there and start to retrain ourselves to be more kind hmm. and that, accepting of us. Yeah, That inner voice, I guess, is the, yeah, it's like the voice of the critic or the, I guess, the champion. And, and if we love ourselves, um, I, I know a lot of what you talk about is this self-love is about kind of beliefs, our ingrained beliefs, the the paradigms that we have. Um, so, so what are really, I guess what you're trying to do is shift a really deeply set belief system. Yes. I say, and I, I realized that going on my own self-love experiment was actually not the experiment itself, but learning how to love myself. I felt in the beginning was one of the hardest things I ever had to do because we're not trained how to love ourselves. If your parents didn't love themselves, it, they don't know what they don't know. And society isn't really saying you need to love yourself. They're saying you need to be skinnier, you need to be smarter, you need to be richer. And so it is this constant battle where we're really going back and forth. One of the, the main things is that we feel like we're not good enough and we kind of keep reaching for something outside of ourselves. I call it the almost paradise syndrome. When I lose weight, I'll be happier. When, you know, when I fix this thing about myself, then I can, you know, start a family. Or We put our life on hold, and that's really the biggest self-sabotager with a lack of self-love. And it really is about saying, what is it that I want for my life, and how can I give myself that now instead of waiting? Because if we get really honest with ourselves, a lot of times we get those things. You know, I wanted to lose weight for so many years. That goal number on the scale was the number one thing to make me happy. I got it, and I still didn't like myself. Hmm. And that's when we have to really get honest with ourselves. And is this something that you can – can you be honest with yourself enough um, when uh, – by yourself? Or do you need someone else – to like create the stimulus to to ask the questions like I, I'm I'm thinking that if I'm self sabotaging then I'm probably pretty good in my mind at manipulating my own thoughts and my own beliefs so how does one take on their thinking you know by themselves Yeah, that's a beautiful question. I I truly believe that a part of the self love experiment is really about becoming self aware. And what I went on was an inward journey that was really personal for me. And, you know, there was a turning point for me in my self-love experiment. I had already been kind of working at it. And I was with my mom and I was, we were having fun just hanging out in her kitchen. And all of a sudden she mentioned a friend and they started to, um, something happened within me. I started to cry. A woman in her mid thirties who writes about happiness and coaches people all around the world was crying. And Mm. she looked at me and she said, Shannon, what is the matter? And I said, do you think someone can love me the way that I am? 
And it was at that moment where I realized that my deepest inner, inner belief was coming to the surface. And so we have to look at our beliefs. But what I was really asking is, do you think anyone can love me the way that I am? But what she said next is actually the most important part of the whole process. And this is what will answer your question. She said, I love you. You're amazing. Don't ever say that about yourself. But then she said, the most important thing is that you're happy. And if you're not happy at this body size, then maybe you need to change your body. And so what I recognized is that that is, I had tried to change myself for so many years. And so by me confining in my mom, she was actually, that was a problem for me because it didn't matter what size I was. The problem wasn't how I looked. The problem was how I felt. Mm. And so we can keep leaning on friends and we can keep saying, hey, honey, do you think I'm fat or do, do you know, and, and address it. But at some point, the answers really are in our heart. The answers really are within ourselves. And so the best thing you can do is really get clear with becoming your own best friend by being there for yourself. Do And I guess we need... It, it seems like your mom was there at a perfect time. Obviously, you had a good relationship, a strong relationship. It also seems like, and I don't know if this was true with your mom, that she could have she could have said things when you were younger that you misunderstood or didn't quite get as an eight-year-old that may have yeah. made it feel more painful. And yet she also seems to be there at this other moment where you're transitioning. I'm so glad you said that because, yes, my mother is one of my best friends. And I think we have to really get honest with sometimes we hear what we need to hear, and or we also hear something that reinforces our insecurity. So as a little child, I saw the way she looked at me or what she said about doing things that, you know, you know, she didn't want me to do. And so when we're little, we often translate things that happen in ways that help create our story. So my story was that I was unlovable, even though I was incredibly loved. I had a great childhood, but I couldn't be loved for who I was or I couldn't be accepted. I was always bullied. So whatever happened in life, I kept feeding that story. So I talk about in my book as well, as adults, how we can rewrite our story to be one of, really be your own hero, be positive and, and be kind to yourself. That's great. Again, we are um, speaking with Shannon Kaiser uh, from the website mindbodygreen.com. And uh, she's also um, teaching us and walking us through the self-love experiment. She's an author and uh, an adventurer. She's written many books. One book is Adventures for Your Soul, 21 Ways to Transform Your Habits and Reach Your Full, your full Potential. Um, talk to us also, Shannon, about... I mean, a lot of us, because of this lack of self-love and the sabotaging, we we may go down a road where we've made uh, we we've done some pretty difficult things. Maybe addictions or disorders, drug or eating disorders, or you know, severe depression. And and um, how do we not carry the baggage of those past choices uh, with us today? How do we learn to let go of those heavy, heavy sabotaging? issues. Such an important topic. And I too, I was diagnosed with clinical depression and suffered from eating disorders and drug addictions many, many years ago before I came to the work that I do today. And so the process that I know to work very well, we have to first allow ourselves to recognize that everything really does have a time and place. And it is, this is part of the self-love experiment where we have to recognize that our struggles and the things that either we hate about ourselves or the pain I talk about in part one of the book that there is purpose to the pain. And so the difficult roads lead us to divine destinations. And what this really means is that whatever you're going through is part of a bigger plan. While you're in it, there are ways to understand how to move through it. And if you're already in a place where you're saying, I'm ready to heal, then 
you're absolutely ready to move forward and, and learn why those situations are in your life. A lot of times they show up for many different reasons, unhealed childhood wounds, lack of self-love. The truth is once I really discovered self-love and, and really started to appreciate myself and understand that there is a purpose to everything, my addictions, my habits, they really transformed. I no longer suffer from any of what was going on in my 20s. And it's, it's a process that you can mm. take yourself on. And really, it's you almost, I guess, can't expect to do it until until you're ready, until you know, until yeah. the student mm-hmm. appears, right? Till the the teacher yeah. won't appear. Yeah, and I talk about that in the book too, because I actually went on my own self love experiment, and I was trying so hard to be ready before, uh, before. So that's why the three months turned into three years, really, because a lot of times when you're ready, it's easy. Think about that time when you had that New Year's resolution, and then five years later, it's the same New Year's resolution, right? Yeah. You're still trying to make the same thing. Whereas other times, you were able to quit smoking right away without any help from anyone, or you were able to start saving for that house you really wanted. Whatever it is, we are ready, and it will happen, and the universe will really give you everything you need to make it happen when it's truly ready. So the goal and the trick is to not beat yourself up if you're not ready. Just be exactly where you are. And start to train your brain to say, you know what, for today, we did the best we could, and tomorrow we're going to do better. Is that a technique we use, I mean, ineffective as it is, that we think somehow guilting or shaming ourselves might uh, somehow induce us to be more ready to make the change? But you're saying, if you're not ready, quit applying the pressure. You're just going to break. Well, that's the key point, the pressure. Take off the pressure, and yes, the guilt and shame and I talk about as well in the self-love experiment, the problems that we have, we feel the biggest problem is that we think they're the problem. So it causes more guilt. It causes more shame. When we allow ourselves to take off the pressure, it doesn't mean we're giving up and saying, oh, screw it. I just won't try. It's just saying we're taking off the mental pressure and we're still going to show up. We're still going to make healthy choices to the best of our ability. But really, the emotional burden we put on ourselves is the most detrimental thing in our healing process. So I really practice removing that guilt and shame by turning to compassion and love. That's it. That's the self-love experiment. Let's take a break and and come back, Shannon. We'll have more as we talk about the self-love experiment, a book by uh, Shannon Kaiser, uh, 15 Principles for Becoming Your More Kind, Compassionate, and Accepting of Yourself. How powerful is that? Um, to even just be able to recognize, no, there is obviously a change I need to make. I'm not there yet, and I, I want to try not to create too much pressure that might drive me into a deeper hole and, and instead maybe prepare, gain more strength to be able to take on the battle. More with Shannon Kaiser. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We do what we can on the program to help you uh, see and be the good in the world. We'll continue the journey. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. The name of the book is The Self-Love Experiment, 15 Principles for Becoming More Kind, Compassionate, and Accepting of Yourself. It uh, is written by Shannon Kaiser, who has written many other books. And uh, you can find more information about Shannon at the website playwiththeworld.com or also mindbodygreen.com. Shannon, again, thank you for your time. Thanks for being with us. Great insight. Yeah. 
Thank you. It's great being here. So what, when I look at, um, you know, this, this self-love, I mean, a lot of people think, oh, it's just so selfish. But mm-hmm. the reality is, is you're the only you you've got, right? And if our, if our thought process is always leading us back to how deficient we are, how pathetic we are, how weak we are, then really what we bring the world is deficiency, <laughs> And weakness. And so how do we I mean, I guess this is this is a process. Like you said, it, it takes a while. And it's it really almost seems like a very personal battle with some of your biggest demons. Yes, self-love. I think that's the thing. You know, we hear the word self-love, and that's why, one, it's called the self-love experiment. When we start to approach it as an experiment, and really, maybe we should be approaching life as an experiment and just trying new things, because a lot of times we have expectations. I have to, you know, reach self-love. I have to lose weight, whatever the goal is. And when we fall off the wagon or whatever it may be, we put so much pressure on ourselves. And so first looking at the fact that maybe we think self-love is selfish and it sounds a little hippy-dippy and it's a word we hear a lot now and it's a little bit like, oh, and I used to think that too. It's really good for them. Okay, they can have it, but I can't even look in the mirror and say something nice about myself. Are you kidding? Self-love is such a concept I'm not ready to get on board with, but I believe self-love is already within us. And I got to a point in my own life where I said, oh my gosh, there is so much suffering and pain in the world. And we can actually choose to say, oh, how dare I take care of myself or show up when there's so much going on? Or I got to a place where I said, by learning how to love myself is actually the best thing I can do in the world because it's raising the vibration on the planet. It's making one less negative person on the planet. And therefore, I'm adding more love. And what I learned, this was transformational for me because what I learned is when I truly do love myself, I am so much more grateful and helpful to everyone else around me. Because like you said, when your cup's full, you can actually help others in a more profound way. Hmm. So really, it's the greatest thing we can do to be here on earth is to love ourselves. That's so true. And really, really, I mean, in any, in any way you look at it, you work you, you change you, you've changed, like just how you said that, one more person on the earth that can be positive and can yeah. vibrate more positivity, I mean, that's going to have endless repercussions. Yeah, and I think we make smarter, healthier, happier choices, too, from a loving place when we are from in a place of self-compassion, you know? And so it really does extend out. We become more generous. We become more peaceful. It's, it's a beautiful journey you can go on. I know in the book you mentioned... Um, you bring in a lot of solutions, a lot of tools that work to help you kind of get back to the self-love. What are some of your favorite tools or the ones that made the biggest impact on you? Yeah, so as as the experiment goes, I actually, I'm a writer, of course, so I have a lot of journal prompts. In fact, at the very end of the book, every question I ask in the book, I put in a list so you can actually go deeper into your own free write, if you will. And some of my favorite tools are actually letters to yourself. So there's a couple different layers of this. One of the things that I did that really helped me was write a letter to my pain point, the part of me that I don't understand, my overweight belly, the flaw that I don't like. I did this when I was suffering from depression too. I said, depression, why are you here in my life? I don't understand. I don't know how to be happy. All I can be is stuck in you. What are you here to teach me? And through this experience of going inward and just asking the questions, instead of saying, oh, I'm stuck, I started to ask a better question, and my depression revealed you're not being true to yourself. You don't want to be in this career. You don't want to live here. You want to be a writer. Follow your heart. 
And so that was my directive. And the same thing I did with my self-love experiment. I said, overweight body, I've tried to lose weight. I don't understand why you're here. Flaws, what are you here to teach me? And I said, I'm here to show you that you can love yourself no matter what. It's not about how you look. It's about how you live. And so give yourself permission to, to go into those points. And then in a little lighter way is just, you know, write a letter to your future self, the part of you that might have it figured out or who is happy and healthy. Say, dear future me, what message do you have for me? And these are fun, kind of playful ways to really allow yourself to be more in the journey. It's powerful because, too, like you said, we already know somewhere inside of us. We know what the answer is. We just kind of build level upon level of delusion and mm-hmm. and lie or illusion around it. So uh, those – boy, those, those writing assignments allow you to to have to kind of deal with it. And then, then I guess once you know, for example, you realize you're not being true to yourself about being a writer, then you have to, I guess, garner the strength to – overcome the fear of, of mm-hmm. risking it. Yeah, I think courage plays a really big part in every part of our life. And so it does come back to how, how much do we really want to settle and stay in our comfort zone? Because once I recognized that, I could have easily said, okay, I know that. I'm going to stay stuck in advertising. I'm going to stay you know, stuck in this life that I don't like. But what I did and what I, I find with many of my life coaching clients, too, is once they identify it, it becomes this force within, almost like, you know, if you're a superhero, you find your, your, your amazing superpower, it becomes motivation. It becomes, I can't not live any other way now. And that's what happened when I discovered I need to be a writer. All of my energy started to turn into, this is what I was put on earth to do. And so I think it actually becomes, the fear goes away because you're so charged up by your, your passion and your purpose. Mm. Well, and I get that, so yeah, that, then it then it reinvigorates you. So your your self love, like you were saying, does give you the power and the courage to take the next step and the next step. Um, plus, I imagine that your once you love yourself more, it seems like if you believe in a higher power, you can you can relate differently to that that higher power. If you believe just in nature, you can relate differently to nature or to anything that's more valuable to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Your relationships become much more in-depth and you really do feel more close to everyone around you. Yeah, I guess more able to to be vulnerable, to risk. I mean, th- those questions yeah. you were saying to your mom were amazing and powerful, which facilitated the ability, it seems like, for you to kind of transcend your sabotage. A lot of us have a hard time even becoming or getting that intimate with somebody, being that real. I think that's the point, too. The self-love experiment gives us permission to explore, and it gives us permission to be us. And being us means I'm going to ask the questions I've never asked before. I'm going to go deeper into my own heart and, and really be aware of maybe why I've been doing what I'm doing without judgment, without criticism, but just kind of like, you know, like a scientist who's working on a science experiment. They have different options they try. And one works, one doesn't. And they say, okay, well, this is a process. I'm going to keep going. Hmm. Good stuff. What, um, I guess, as, we, as we're wrapping up, I always like to know, like, the one thing, the one thing that, you know, every one of us could do today that would, it would immediately get us into the self-love experiment, I guess, uh, other than obviously buying the book. But what, <laughs> what, what's something we can do today? that would would immediately kind of invigorate us or at least open us up to take the next step of self-love? Absolutely. The very first thing I would say is to really 
start to be aware of the inner critic that's in your mind by addressing yourself in a more kind way. So this starts the minute you wake up and the minute even before you go to bed. Instead of going through a list of all the things you didn't do today or waking up and say, I have to do this, oh my gosh, and having that stressful voice lead you, say, I am so grateful. So it really is about appreciation and acceptance for what is. And start to say, I'm so grateful for my furry friend I get to hug next to me or my significant other or start to focus on what is going well. Take your attention off the things you hate, the things that aren't going well. Focus for the next 48 hours. Let's do this. 48 hours straight. Just give all your attention to what you appreciate, what is going well. And this could be at your job. This could be about your body. This could be about your life, your environment. And then watch how your life transforms, and that'll be a good introduction to the self-love experiment. Powerful stuff. Shannon Kaiser, thank you so much for your insight, for your work. The name of the book, The Self-Love Experiment, 15 Principles for Becoming More Kind, Compassionate, and Accepting of Yourself. You can find more on uh, Shannon Kaiser and her work at her website, playwiththeworld.com, and where you can also find information about all of her books, all of her writings, her blog, her offerings, wonderful stuff. Ah, power. There's power, isn't there? In uh, just simple questioning of yourself without the critic beating you up with a club over your head. It, it doesn't work. It just wears you down. And to start with a little gratitude seems to be a perfect place to start. We'll continue this journey, folks. Our goal is to help you get a leg up in life and to hopefully help all of us see each other differently and be able to truly have self-love. We'll continue the journey up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on Sirius XM, 143 BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Did you know that there was so much research on the spiritual benefits um, and the health benefits of spirituality? So I see it all the time with my clients. They come in and uh, I, teach a, I teach a basic concept of body, mind, spirit, that everything we do, we are going to either have to orient from our body, our mind, or the way we think, or our spirit. Our spirit, I teach, basically knows peace. The example I always give, um, like adults, about the spirit is when you're holding your baby, you're in the middle of the night, you're not, you know, thinking he's going to be president or anything. You're just calm, you're rocking your baby to sleep, and you just feel love and peace and just, you just feel joy, right? To me, that's the power of the spirit. Spirit uh, is, and again, and she described it so beautifully, Dr. Lisa Miller did, spirit is is the essential form of who we all are. And every major religion is basically going to understand that there's some spiritual part of us. That spirit's always operating. I believe it's inside of each of us. Then we all have minds and we have bodies. The mind, so the spirit brings the peace. The mind wants to be popular. The mind wants to be pretty. The mind is the identity we've all set up for ourselves. So we come to this earth, and when you sit there and you look at that cute baby, and that baby's you know two months old or five months old or ten months old, and you're like, oh, you're so beautiful. Look at your eyes. You're so smart. You're the smartest baby. Oh, you throw that ball so hard. All of those different things start to create an identity for this child. And eventually that child is going to think that it is all of these things, blue-eyed, blonde hair, whatever. 
throws a great curveball. But the problem is that's not who you are spiritually, right? So there's a little bit of a discord between who you are spiritually and who your mind thinks you are. You might even just think you're a a guy or a gal, or you might think you're smart or you're not. Oh, yeah, I'm not very smart. I didn't do very well on the ACT. Failed the ACT. So all of a sudden, because you failed the ACT, your mind thinks that's who you are. Now, do you think your spirit cares about your ACT? Your spirit knows that you're this being that's been living and has existed and you're powerful beyond measure. Yeah, but I'm fat. That's my mind telling me I'm fat. Or I can orient from my body and my body basically wants pleasure or pain or procreate. That's pretty much what it brings or the party. What's for dinner? So sometimes we come to life and and we let our bodies, our desires direct us. Sometimes if I have fear, my body might feel fear because I've got to go talk to my boss about whatever. So my body creates chemistry. My mind makes up a story. Yeah, he's not going to like me because of this and this and this, which creates complexity. But at any point, we can get back to our spirit. So however you get to spirit, some meditate, some read scriptures, some will sing a hymn, some will just think of their God. Imagine your God just holding you as you're, you know, walking in with you to go talk to your boss. If you have to go in with your God, what on earth is your boss going to do that will matter? You can still feel peace, right? So body, mind, spirit. And I'm telling you, I teach this all the time to people and they come in and once they can start to recognize if they're feeling, you know, body, mind or spirit, then we can get back to the spiritual core, I call it. We've got to get back to that spiritual sense of who we all are. And when we do, we feel peace instantly. Now, it doesn't change everything, right? It just changes how you see everything. If you just lost your spouse to cancer, you're going to probably have to operate at all three of those levels. Your body will miss that person. It will ache to be next to that person. It will create major pain chemistry. Your mind will start creating major fears and convolutions like, oh, am I going to be able to make it? I don't know if I have enough money. I don't even know where the insurance is. What if I can't find somebody else? What if I, what if nobody wants to be around me? Our fears start to come up. Fears don't exist in your spirit. They don't even exist in your body. Your body's going to respond to a stimulus. It's not just going to automatically feel the fear. Something's got to kick in, right? That might be the mind. So the mind starts to kick in and create stories for you. So a lot of times our grieving is us trying to manage our mind. A lot of times our fear, the most difficult things on this earth tend to be, I believe, conjured by the mind. So body, mind, spirit, we're doing it all the time. Coaching 101, the number one secret, let me tell you. You don't need to get in spirit. You already are in spirit. You just need to notice where you are. And the minute you notice if you're in body, mind, or spirit, you're already moving to spirit. Because the only thing that notices its mind is the spirit. Right? The mind doesn't notice itself. That's It thinks that that's who you are. But when you start looking at yourself like, are you kidding me? I'm making such a big deal over something that's so stupid. The minute you're starting to think that way, you're already moving into your, your spirit. Again, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. We're not just human beings having a spiritual experience. It's, it's the most powerful tool I've ever seen. 
I have a son that's in Mexico serving a, a mission for the LDS Church in northern Mexico, and we, had, we got to talk to him on Mother's Day. And he just sat there and spoke spiritually to my other son that's about to go on a mission. And it was the most amazing spirit-to-spirit conversation you've ever seen. And I could see my son's mind spinning because, oh, he's so scared to go out and doesn't know what he wants to do. And my other son just basically shared his testimony, his belief, and the spirit talked to spirit. It was the most incredible thing. Folks, everybody out there, the people in the car in front of you, they're all spiritual beings. Whatever your religion, we're all just spiritual beings trying to make it through this crazy thing we call life. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Honestly, um, a drought in the West. Do you remember the Dust Bowl? You know, in the Midwest. Um, the Depression. Do you remember Hurricane Katrina? I mean, a problem in any part of the country is a problem for everybody in the country. Your, you know, economic problems in California are going to impact everybody. So when we think about any of these challenges, I I would just, as part of the Coach's Corner, challenge all of us to remember, and, and Tony Arnold, our earlier guest, brought up a great word, or two, or actually three, uh, hope, and he, he taught us that hope is a byproduct of having agency, knowing that you have choices to make, that you are an agent that will act, and I believe every human being on this earth is here to act. You're not just here to be acted upon. You're here to act. You're not even just here to let, you know, nature act just upon you. You can also proactively choose how you're going to manage nature to the degree that you can manage nature, right? Um, You also have, so you have agency. You also have to keep your choices and your options open. I would call that freedom. He calls it pathways. But the more freedom you have, we can have all the rights in the world and the freedom in the world. But if you don't act on the freedom because or you don't see that you have freedoms, then they're not there for you. So hope is a byproduct of knowing you're an agent with choices. And the best way to get more choices is to keep your mind open and keep learning more and more things. And the more things you know, the more choices you have, which gives you more hope. Right. The minute you have no more options and you don't think you are an agent, we're in trouble. And so when we're trying to sit and think about managing our our, our monies or if we're trying to manage our water supply, uh, we've got to know that we're agents. And so think about that. It's one thing in this world to be given all the rights that we have. But with every right is a demanded responsibility. We hear the Supreme Court making decisions all the time that are holding up rights. And with those rights come responsibilities for all of us. Um, and with water usage comes certain responsibilities, especially if you want to be part of the community of water. And this demands management, and this demands some proactivity and some planning and some 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 choices to be made. That was one word he brought up was the hope. Another one he brought up that I think is fascinating is stewardship. Do you feel as a user that you have a stewardship over how much money or how much water you use? We made a mistake once. One of our lines in our house uh, broke, and it was an underground line outside, and it was just spewing water for months. We didn't even know about it. And um, we eventually had the water you know, company come to us and just say, whoa, you've used thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of 
gallons of water. I felt horrible. I felt guilty. Like, we felt guilty because we've wasted all of this water. And our kids come home and tell us to turn off our water and don't brush your teeth with the water on. Do you feel like you're a steward of your resources in your city, in your community? Because every one of us, we are. And steward is is a really sacred thing. You have the you have the stewardship of the environment, but you also have the stewardship of your family to teach your family how to appreciate and love and care for the environment. And you don't have to be a you know big tree hugger to go do that, but you can you can be a good steward. So just remember those words: steward, agent, options, right, pathways, and hope. It's all good, folks. It's all good. Uh, West will make it through the drought. Let's just let's just plan. Let's get on the same page. Let's be cooperative. Let's be good stewards. That's the Coach's Corner. We're going to take a break. More on the Matt Townsend Show next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I mean, when you think about depression or anxiety or ADHD or any kind of mood disorder or just other things, migraines, fibromyalgia, Hashimoto's disease, all of these things... They're, they're hard, they're complicated, and we have so many people, our neighbors, our friends, our family, that are battling these issues. They're battling them day in and day out, and you don't even know it. You don't know that somebody, your neighbor, was just diagnosed with something. And, I mean, if it was cancer, we're all like, oh, that would be horrible. But you don't know that they were diagnosed with depression and as uh, Sandra Turley was talking about, they're battling with just the idea that I've got depression. And they might, it might take three or four months to figure out what that means. And instead of us all just judging these people like, oh, they're just a rude neighbor. Yeah, they never say hi. I say hi to them all the time and they never say hi. Well, meanwhile, back in the back bedroom of your neighbor that never says hi, she's struggling with migraines. She's she's not just the neighbor that's closed off and trying to avoid you. She's also trying to close off the light from her home because the light causes headaches. What if we could all be a little more accepting, a little more patient, a little more taking the place of other um, and and trying to understand somebody before we – you know, before we judge them? What if we could have more compassion of one another and maybe walk in their shoes? Oh, that's just so soft and fluffy, Matt. Yeah. Until it's you, right? And again, for some it's depression and that's going to be their cross to bear. And for others, it's a child that gets away and is struggling. And for other, it's, uh, you know, somebody that that harms them in a car accident. We've all got a cross that we've got to carry. We've all got a, a cross that we have to bear. Um, and yet in the end, and it doesn't go away. And the longer you go, 
the more likely you are to eventually receive the cross if you haven't received it yet and feel the burden of it. Um, just give everybody time. Give everybody time. And if it's not you, it could be your parents you're helping through. Which is why, you know, if is you're aging and your parents are aging, right when you finally get your kids out of your house and everything should be great and now you got money and you've got age and youth still to to go have a life with your family or your spouse, then your aging parents need care. The burden is everybody's, right? And if we could just see that everyone around us is suffering silently something and be a little slower to judge, a little slower to react, um, let's get more of our self-worth, more of our um, – sense of value from being somebody who can just care. What if we could just increase our ability to love somebody? And and it doesn't have to be soft and just foo-foo-y. It could also be powerful. There's there's people that you could go impact their life today if just by giving them a break, just by not having to react, just shake your head and walk away. Um, makes sense. And it's not, it's not easy making it through life. And it's really not easy making it through life when everyone around you has a critique. And I sometimes worry that, you know, we're so proud of our rights to speak and freedom to speak. And we all want our freedoms, but none of us want the responsibility of also knowing when not to speak. If somebody says something stupid, you don't necessarily have to combat it. You could just let that silly idea drop and die. You don't have to beat the stupid idea to a bloody pulp. Just let it go and instead elevate the conversation by saying something healthier. Anyway, folks, we're in this together and it's not going away. We are uh, we are neighbors and we are each other's good Samaritans. So let's do what we can to elevate the game. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting uh, conversation. Matt, if you could just go to a therapist uh, or if you didn't need to go to the therapist and you could just do it yourself, we're going to put a lot of therapists out of business. <laughs> Ben's like, Yes. I mean, therapists do great work, but many times they're just, they're they're really just reflective listeners, right? They're listening well. And what would happen if you had a friend that was a, a, just a really good listener? Are you that kind of friend that you can perform that listening function, um, you know, for your partner to, to help get their emotions out? Oh. It's it's not easy. I get it. I know. I know. It's not easy. And so um, when you think about it, and I, I see this a lot in my practice, there's there's these signs, okay? I call them, you don't need to just always be, I don't know, totally ready and engaged to just listen to your partner. But there are times you have to be ready to be engaged and listen to your partner. There's three signs I look for, and I learned about them. Um, I learned about this concept as an emergency medical technician. So right after uh, uh, when I was about 21, I guess, I was an EMT 
on an ambulance and I was certified in you know life support or basic life support and uh, learned all the tools and the rules and, and how, to, how to basically take care of somebody in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. And one of the first things they taught us is you got to check vital signs, right? Vital signs, because you need to know where your patient is. There's a very basic baseline for where your patient is, and you need to check, you know, pulse, um, respirations. If you could, oxygenation, see how well they're oxygenating. You could take a, a blood pressure, just basic signs. And the neat thing about humans is we pretty much have these very basic vital signs and then what happens is there's a very powerful um, pattern that doctors and, and hospitals use where when you come in and see them, you can say whatever you want to say about why, what you're feeling, and they'll be listening to you. But while they're listening to you, they're going to check your vital signs, right? They're going to check your temperature. They're going to check a bunch of different things. All of those are signs of something going on deeper down. And what I have found is just like we have it physiologically, we have vital signs. Emotionally, we have vital signs as well. So there's three signs I'm constantly looking for in the people that are around me. Negative emotion is a sign. There's a sign of something deeper going on. And if you see negative emotion in somebody, instead of yapping and instead of arguing and telling them your point of view, I wouldn't tell them. I would just try to understand where their emotion is coming from. So I look for negative emotion, I look for misunderstanding, and I look for mistrust. When I see those signs, I know I need to kind of get out of my agenda and get into the agenda of the other person, right? So if, if, my, if my spouse comes home and they're slamming doors, that's negative emotion. I should see that, pay attention to that. I should try to understand what's going on. Hey, babe, I can see you're frustrated. Tell me what's going on. I'm just mad because the kids took my whatever... And I can't find it and I've got to go use it right now. There's frustration. Behind every negative emotion, you're going to hear a story. People want to tell their story because they would love the emotion to go away. So what if as humans, we could just start paying attention to the negative emotion, the misunderstandings. Misunderstanding simply means when something's going on and you don't know why it's going on and there's a misunderstanding. If I'm if if I have a, a person that's that's quiet and and shuts down, I'm going to know they have negative emotion, and I don't understand exactly why. I shouldn't just guess. Is this because of what happened last year? <laughs> I mean, last year's example of, of this same, you know, behavior may not be very accurate. So I, what I'd love to do is recognize the emotion. You seem really upset. What's going on? Share with me why you're upset. Because if I could get the story, that would increase my understanding, right? And then if I could understand the person and not, you know, make them worse, then they could trust me. So that's what we're looking for in our relationships. Emotional management, understanding, and trust. That's the best thing I've ever learned to know when I need to be listening to somebody. When I see that they're negative emotionally, when I don't understand why and I don't understand their reasoning, try to understand it, and do they trust me to share it? Anyway, that's where I'd start working with the people I love, the people I care about. A little coach's corner for you right there. Emotional management, it's hard stuff, let alone doing it with each other. Near impossible. We'll take a break, folks. We've got more ideas for you, more tools. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's it's a big deal. Marriage, it's not easy, and it's it doesn't have to be as hard as we may make it. Did you know that the average couple spends as few as four minutes a day talking to each other? No wonder it can be so hard to figure out what your partner is thinking or what they want. After being married for a while, couples get so used to finishing each other's sentences that they forget to let the other person talk sometimes. Small details like simple conversations can get lost in the everyday to-do lists. And today, licensed clinical social worker and psychotherapist Marsha Naomi Berger joins us to discuss her book, Marriage Meetings for Lasting Love. She's going to tell us how couples can conduct a weekly gentle conversation that increases intimacy, romance, teamwork, and smoother resolution of conflicts. Welcome to the show, uh, Marsha Naomi Berger. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, well, thank you very much, Matt, for having me on your show. I'm glad to be here. You bet. Now, you go by Naomi. Naomi, talk to us about what drove you to do this. You're a therapist. Where did you come up with this idea of just the 30-minute meeting? Oh, okay. It was a um, a gradual process that turned into a book, kind of an organic process. When my husband and I first got married over 28 years ago, even though I was already an established couple and family therapist who was teaching other therapists how to do couple and family therapy, when I got married, it was still like a new experience because you're not objective when it's your own situation. So I knew I had things to learn. Right. And my husband and I learned about a class for couples called Time for a Better Marriage. We were getting along okay. It wasn't like a big crisis. It was just like, let's learn. And um, we were the only couple in Marin County that signed up for the class. So hmm. I used to joke um, we were the only ones that had room to grow. <laughs> and um, it was a very nice class. This wonderful woman taught it just for the two of us. It was about eight weeks. About five minutes or less was devoted to the idea of having a weekly marriage meeting with a four-part agenda. Hmm. And. That was the one thing that we took from the class that we kept doing. And as we did it, we refined it. And eventually, we, um, I ended up giving seminars to other people and teaching my clients how to have marriage meetings and writing articles, and it evolved into the book. That's... It took years, you know, from the beginning until the book actually came out. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I do a lot of uh, communication coaching, relationship coaching with couples where we teach them to talk and resolve problems. And where we found they have the biggest impact is once they've learned the skills and you teach them how to do an agenda that's pretty fulfilling, you turn them to each other and they start just naturally improving their systems, their, their life. Exactly, and that's the value of the weekly marriage meeting. You get practice, practice, and more practice in using the skills, Um, and I have outlined them step-by-step in the book. And we find that, uh, as my husband and I found at the beginning, the meeting could take a long time if you were going to put all your backed-up stuff into it, finished business. That's a common way of describing it. Um, But that's not productive to try to do everything at once. So we say eliminate um, anything that's going to take more than 45 minutes for the whole meeting. And um, as you get used to having them, you can often do them in 30 minutes or less. Does, Does anybody ever push back on you, Naomi, and say, you know, we're not a business. We don't need to formally sit down and have a meeting. We could just talk about it whenever. 
Yeah, and when is one ever going to happen? Right. That's the problem, Television, huh? Television, books, uh, <laughs> business concerns. Uh, so there's so many distractions. Uh, th- that's why, uh, you know, as you mentioned, that uh, this dismal statistic where the average couple spends four minutes a week conversing. <laughs> that's crazy. Maybe four minutes a day. Now I can't remember yeah, what it was. <laughs> it was four minutes a day uh, minutes talking a day. to each other. Yeah. And. Yeah. It, there's issues. Things come up. And if we can't talk about it, then I guess we just have to make assumptions. We just assume stuff's happening. Or, or sweep it under the rug mm-hmm. and so it, uh, comes uh, back to haunt us. What do you do if if you are somebody who, who would like to hold these meetings, but you can't get buy-in from your spouse? Yeah, that's a very common objection. Now, sometimes the person who says, my partner won't do it has their own reservations about doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's assume that um, one is into the idea 100% and the other is kind of uh, not really sure or, or resistant. And then we try to look into why. And a common fear is that the person is going to get criticized by his spouse or long laundry list of uh, to-do things, what about this and that and that, and that could feel overwhelming and actually frightening. Uh, So it's important to make sure that the initial meeting, once you, and I'll talk about how you might secure Mm -hmm. agreement to have an initial meeting, but it should be focused heavily on appreciation and really um, nothing too heavy discussed. Just get used to the idea of having the meetings until you get comfortable with the meetings, because it is an artificial structure, like you say, and people might say, oh, it's not romantic. But what really happens is that once people get used to them and use the communication skills effectively and follow the agenda, there's more intimacy, there's more romance, and there is a um, better teamwork and smoother resolution of the challenges. Now, let's say... uh, it's not always the husband, sometimes it's the wife, but typically women are more verbal, so more open to talking. And um, one thing a wife can say to her husband is, I'm not asking for a lot. You know, let's just try it one time. Yeah. Not, not yeah. doing this for life. Let's try it one time. Especially maybe the husband wants something like, I want to go to this particular uh, event with you, and maybe you don't want to go. Say, okay, let's, let's make a deal. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll go to that. You have... One little marriage, you know, with, yeah. you know, and then you make it a really, really nice experience. Think of everything you, because the first agenda item is appreciation. And that's when you want to really load it on your partner, all the things that you value that happened in the last week. Man, that's, I mean, I guess that's it. If there's, if there's hesitancy, it's, it's just because we haven't done it enough. We, we're, we're a little tentative. We're worried about it. But once we've done it a lot... Because there's going to be a moment where you need to learn, you need to know how to sit down and handle a tough issue better later. I mean, better to do it sooner than later, right? Definitely. Get that, get that skill down. Well, I mean, let's. Are the pe- yeah, oh, go ahead. You know, go ahead. as a coach, probably, yeah. I know as a therapist, and coaching is part of therapy, I think, when it's good therapy. Yeah. Um, and uh, we know that the reason people come in generally is that things have been swept under the rug for too long. And or they don't have the communication skills to know how to rectify That's situations right. or prevent them from happening. That's right. And I, I love um, – we, we all know communication is important. One of the things I learned as a kind of a social psychologist was that the communication is what creates the meaning. It's how we can change the symbols in our lives. And, I mean, there's a lot of symbols in marriage that start to become problematic. Kids, money, sex – 
you know, religion, chores, all these things are symbols that need to be negotiated. And if we don't ever meet and talk, we don't negotiate them very well. Right. And there can be a lot of mind reading and assumptions that um, if we don't check them out, then we don't uh, really connect and we are kind of keeping ourselves from growing. That's right. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Naomi, Naomi Berger. Marsha Naomi Berger. Yeah, you, yeah you, Marsha Naomi Berger. Um, Marriage Meetings for Lasting Love is the name of her book. You can go to her website, marriagemeetings.com. We'll take a break, come back, continue this discussion, and uh, see if we can't uh, learn how to hold these meetings. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Townsend Show. Does your marriage need a pick-me-up or just even, hey, just some stability and some some uh, strength so that it can grow forward in a healthy, loving way? Well, maybe a marriage meeting is what is, is needed. Joining us is Marsha Naomi Berger. She's the author of the book Marriage Meetings for Lasting Love, and she's here uh, teaching us about the power of these meetings. Welcome back to the show. We appreciate you being with us today. Oh, thank you, Matt. I'm very glad to be here. You bet. Talk to us about kind of the agenda. And I know in the book you talk about it, you walk everybody through the steps, but what are the things that should be part of this meeting? So the four steps of the meeting, and this is a really, it it sounds structured, but it's pretty loosely structured because these are just the general categories. And then you fill in, the couple, each person can fill in how they want to approach each category. So the four Categories are appreciation, chores or responsibilities, planning for good times, and then discussing problems or challenges. Hmm. And uh, the first part, appreciation, each person takes an uninterrupted tone saying exactly what they like about the person now and during the past week since the meeting is designed to happen every week. So whatever um, can be simple things like I like the way your blue shirt brings out the lovely blue color of your eyes, and it could be I appreciate how um, all the delicious meal you cooked on Wednesday night. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was, let's see, what did you make? Um, eggplant parmesan. You made my favorite. Thank you very much. So um, anything, really, you know, I appreciate you visiting my aunt with me, even though, um, you know, you had a lot on your plate, but you took the time out, and I really value your support. That's great. And so it's really about figuring, it's about making sure we're seeing what's good, what's working, what's positive. Talk about what we appreciate, um, and I guess that kind of gets into the positive psychology world, right, where we're, we're identifying the good in the, the good in the world. Right, and it's that's a basic premise of social work is you do build on people's strengths. Yeah, and then and then I guess we get a little more technical about chores and planning, like because this is just the day in day out stuff. It sounds like, but it's important to make sure we're we're balancing the workload and how we feel about what's going on and what we want to do. Yeah, this is how we build teamwork, and we also prevent nagging and grudges. So yeah. marriage meetings are very proactive because if we take care of things promptly, then there's 
no reason for holding grudges, and uh, you don't have to uh, let things pile up every week. Things get taken care of. If they don't, uh, then we say, okay, Rome wasn't built in a day. We have next week to follow up on it. Mm -hmm. And I guess as part of this, um, this, this meeting could be 30 minutes, no more, you say, I guess, than like 45 minutes, right? Yes, because we get tired. We, my husband and I actually figured that out. I'll give my husband credit because when um, I, when he, it, it also goes with the guidelines. The guidelines are you want to have your meeting when you're both well rested. You don't do it too late at night, and, uh, and and you don't make it last more than 45 minutes because we can get kind of cranky or overwhelmed if right. we don't really have the energy for it anymore. So we want to come in when we're not hungry and we're sober and we're uh, we're not too tired, so we noticed then when we started meeting too late, um, we would get cranky. Right. <laughs> My husband said, we've got to start these, you know, or he didn't say we have to, he'd say, you know, he thought we should. It would be better to start the meetings earlier so that we're in a good frame of mind for them. And, and you know, we're human, so we all have our little things <laughs> that we have to adjust for. But certainly we don't want to be having a serious discussion when we should be sleeping. Hmm. I mean, again, these are all things that we we figure out in our marriages anyway, but it, if we don't have to do it after 55 times of them making, like calling me a certain name, don't call me that name, then we got to talk about it. We we could learn this early just in the meeting and just say, oh, by the way, I really don't like it when you call me this name. Um, and then I, I always call it making a rule. Then all of a sudden out of this, we, we just make a rule. We understand that, okay, I, I don't do that. And then when I quit doing it, it it seems like an easy way to just keep learning and i'm i'm actually rededicating myself in every meeting to being better right and what we want to do with the i don't like you doing this is what i would like you to to do instead is because it's hard to stick with something that's like a negative expectation and it's much easier to um frame it as what i would like instead mm-hmm. because of the premise that the unconscious does not recognize a negative. Like mm-hmm. if I say to you, don't think of a pink elephant, what are you going to think of? Yeah, a friend. If I say, yeah. don't, don't nag me. Okay. That's right. Nag, nag, nag. It's one that's stick in my head. I'm a nag. I'm a nag. I'll keep nagging. So, so we do have to try to be alert to that. And, and then, it seems like, yeah, go ahead. It's ahead, very then. natural for some reason. You know, maybe it's like from being uh, way, way back when, when we had to worry about these um Actually, with the way we are, the world is now, we have to worry also about a lot of um, scary things. But um, there's something in our brain, I think, where we, we we're kind of alert to bad things that could happen. Right. And and that so so it's like an automatic thing uh, that we want to reverse if we want to have you know connect better with our partners instead of saying um, what we don't want too often. <laughs> Sometimes mm-hmm. we just have to, but, but but to try to reframe it also to what I would like instead is. What do you... you know, um, like if you're angry with me, I'd like you to make an I statement and say, um, it upsets me when you do blah, 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 or mm-hmm. it hurts my feelings when you do that. I, I'd really appreciate it if, if you're angry with me, if you just say, I don't like it. You know, I'd rather you do such and such. Or yeah. It makes me uncomfortable when you do such and such. And and learning is, I guess, the key to this. This turns us into a couple, a learning couple that right. we're and not assuming. And growing. Yeah, we don't mm-hmm. assume we married the one. The we, we're we're becoming the one. Exactly. 
I heard of a couple, um, it was an arranged marriage. I, I read about this uh, some time ago. It's a couple arranged marriage uh, from, they were from India, I believe, and they were, turned out to be a very happy marriage. And she said, we don't think of ourselves as human beings. We think of ourselves as human becomings. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess that's part of the goal here. And once we've kind of sorted through everything that we know is good and appreciative that we appreciate, we've talked about, you know, chores and housework and what jobs need to be done and we're planning and we've got our weekend plan for the good things and our trips coming up. Then you just say spend some time discussing the problems. You gave us right. some, some keys on that. And then um, – we talk it out, and then how do we wrap up this couple's meeting? Oh, that's a really good question, because sometimes people say, oh, well, you're ending with talking about problems and challenges. You know, that could be kind of downer. Right. But it, it really isn't, because um, usually you get a nice feeling of resolution, and, and then uh, I also encourage people to thank each other for meeting, and you can express your appreciation with a handshake, a hug, or you know, a nice smile, but, but definitely thank each other for meeting. That's great. And then, you know, Go watch TV or go right. you can, you might do go, whatever you, know, you... So, uh, Frankly, you know, a lot of times we might just go off on our own. We've had our intense, yeah. our intense yeah. time together. Now now we uh, take a break. And go process and, and figure out, you know, what you can do. I think it's powerful. And if anything, just, just simply having time, making time for each other, that's got to be beneficial in and of itself. Definitely. And, you know, we kind of skipped over the date part, but that's really, really important. The, the planning for fun should include the um, well-known idea but not followed enough of having a, a weekly date with yeah. just the two of you. I mean, and how great is that? Fun. You don't have your marriage meeting on your date. That's a separate occasion. Yeah, there you the, go. The date is totally to nurture yourselves and each other and kind of get to the place more like when you were courting before you got married mm-hmm. where everybody was just having a nice time, daydreaming out loud, etc. Yeah. That's great. Well, we appreciate it. Marsha Naomi Berger and your great work on marriage meetings. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you again for having me here. You bet. Go check out the website, marriagemeetings.com. Helping you uh, love stronger, folks. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. We are doing a Coach's Corner, uh, giving you my take, my version on some pretty healthy New Year's resolutions. Um, I mean, I know a lot of you have already, you know, you're already on it. But I think it comes down to about 5% of people in the end actually make New Year's resolutions and keep those New Year's resolutions. So keep it up, folks. Uh, Let me just suggest, though, there might be a different way to approach a New Year's resolution that could increase the odds that you are going to actually succeed. And I'm calling it the tangible versus intangible approach because most of us end up focusing our time, our energy on a tangible goal. And when you're goal setting, that's one of the things that Every expert would say, yeah, you've got to have a very specific, tangible type of goal. I agree. I totally agree. The problem with it is there's a big jump between having a tangible goal and understanding the intangibles that make it work. Every single time I've set an exercise goal, it was my intangible motivation, my intangible thoughts, my intangible uh, needs, beliefs, feelings – 
It's sometimes it was my relationships and sometimes my habits, all of which are intangible. They're all kind of inside of me and need and are and are directed by me that end up derailing my goal. So instead of spending all of your energy on something that's incredibly tangible that you can believe in, you might want to also focus on the intangible. So far, I've talked about two things uh, that are intangibles that you need to be asking yourself. Your thoughts. So this year, what thoughts, if elevated, would create the most positive impact for the year? If the thought is that you need to improve your sense of uh, self-respect, respecting yourself, your own sense of self-esteem, valuing and believing in yourself, if that's the thought, then let's work on that. Let's not try to do this in reverse where I'm going to go get abs, an incredible six-pack so that I can feel better about myself. Why don't I feel better about myself and then start setting some tangible goals? Now, you could do both, right? And I would love you. If you want to do both, go ahead and do both. However, most of us just set the tangible goal and we don't really dig into the other stuff, especially our thinking, because that's harder. I don't like to think about my thoughts because it makes me think bad thoughts. And then I feel negative feelings. The second uh, intangible I was talking about before the break, you got to work on your feelings. What feelings, if elevated, would you would have the most positive impact on this new year for you? What feelings do you need to change about you? What feelings do you need to change about your view and your feelings about your life, about your job? Is it negativity? Is it a feeling of overwhelm? Is it a feeling like you have no energy? What's the feeling? Third intangible, relationships. What relationships need a stronger connection this year? Now, I'm not talking what people... I'm talking about relationships. What relationships in your life need a stronger connection from you? Your conscience is telling you all the time, I'm losing my kids. I need to spend more time. I need to pay more attention to my kids. Time, you can probably block out and, and go get more time. But I need to know what relationship because that relationship matters to you, obviously. What people in your life do you want to get closer to, connect to, or make a closer part of your life? What relationships need more attention from you this year? By the way, those relationships may be different than last year's relationships. And you can, you can adjust and focus on a different relationship if you need to. What relationships, if improved, will most positively impact the quality of your peace in your life? What relationships are the most important to you and your highest purposes in life? And what is the most important thing you can do this year to improve connection in these relationships? So set some goals around the relationship, around the thoughts, around the feelings, last but not least, around the habits. What habits, if established, would most elevate what you're trying to become this year? What habits, if you were able to accomplish them, would help you become the person you want to be and get into understanding the habit. If the habit is a habit of exercise, if the habit is a habit of um, uh, you know, smoking, drinking, if you want to cut back on unhealthy foods, what are the habits you want to work on? 
So of all the things in your life, what are the most important things that you do that make you the best person you can become? So to me, that's all a habit is, right? All a habit is, is what you do. So what are the actions you need to work on? And um, then when, when you answer the question, well, I need to work on my exercise habits. Then what you could go back and ask is, great, what thoughts do I have around exercise that need to change? What feelings do I have that need to change? How can my relationships influence or enhance my ability to, to keep this habit? Make sense? It's, it's a different approach. And it, a lot of you may be thinking, well, I do that. I do that. But what, what I find in the end, every time, every time I fail in one of my goals, it's going to come down to a thought that I'm not dealing with effectively, past, present, or future, feelings that I'm having or have had that I haven't dealt with, relationships that might impede or enhance and or my habits. I'd work on those parts of your goal setting, not just on your six pack. And here's the coolest reason why. When I, um, when I have my thoughts aligned to a more healthy me and my feelings are now coming and flowing, that by the way, in my world is called motivation. Motivation is when my thoughts are aligned to generate the right feelings to get the right stuff done. And if I fix my thinking and my feeling to create a healthier vibe and a healthier direction, then I might actually find out that as a 46-year-old male who's never had a six-pack, that I probably don't need one, but I do need I want to be healthier. I want to be fit. I want to fit into clothes better. And what's amazing is by having the right thought and the right feeling, I'll actually probably end up setting better tangible goals. And I'm also not limited to just one tangible goal. There are 500 different ways I can become healthier, not just a six-pack. Does that make sense? I'm telling you, it will, it will free you up because once you get the principle right of thought, you'll have a million options for how else you can think healthier about yourself. It might be able to use your other talents. It might be able to use other, um, other you know, strengths that you have in order to elevate your thinking. So four basic things, thoughts, feelings, relationships, habits. Thoughts, feelings, relationships, habits. And you could even wake up every morning and just think, great, today, what thought do I need to elevate? Don't, don't work on the thought you need to – that's broken. Work on the – just say, what do I need to – what thought do I need to improve or elevate to have the greatest impact today? Oh, okay, I'm going to be positive today. Positivity. Be specific. What is it? What is it about positivity? What drains me at my positivity? And, and try to create a, a healthier view. What would it look like if I was feeling positive today? I'd get up and I'd run out and I'd spend time having breakfast with my kids. Great. What would that look like? And what, would that, what does that make you feel if, when you're out there on those days and you're effectively dealing with your kids? And then get to your feelings. I'd feel better. I'd, I'd, I'd leave the house. I wouldn't feel as much guilt for not having had conversations with my kids before they went to 
school. Great. How would that strengthen the relationships? Oh, profoundly. They'd trust me more. They'd talk to me more. I'd know more about their lives. Great. What can I do to make this a habit? Maybe get to bed earlier, maybe, and then you make the habit. I know, not easy, just different. And you don't even need to do all four. Just work on one of them, your thoughts, your feelings, your relationships, or your habits. I'm telling you, folks, change is hard. And I think the idea is don't get caught up in the need to perfect this. Talk about progress. Think about direction. If I can think better today than I did yesterday, oh, that's a huge advantage. If I can feel better today, just a little bit, than I did yesterday, or if I can feel overall better this week than I did last week, or this month than I did last month, that's better. If my relationships are a tad bit healthier, stronger, that's great. If my habits are a little more aligned to more who I want to become, it's great. I don't need you perfect at it because the reality is you won't be. And I think that's actually the reason that this works because you don't need to be perfect. That's a thought you might need to change. You don't need to be perfect. You need to be you and you need to be connected and growing every day, not even perfectly, just you growing a little day every day. Interesting stuff, huh? Anyway, that's uh, my take on New Year's resolutions. Everybody's got their own take. Come on. But uh, we're going to take a break. It's, it's life, folks. That's why, we're, that's why we do the show. That's why we're trying to give you the help that we can. And uh, in the end, you're the only one that knows you. You're the only one that can question really deeply, profoundly your thoughts, your feelings, your relationships, your habits. You're the one that matters. Um, so get into you especially before you try to fix the outside of you, work on the inside. We'll take a break. We'll be right back on The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. 